Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Abuha. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper on Sunday, April 21st, 2019. It's Easter Sunday. Mm -hmm. So spring has sprung. Right. We're celebrating all the holidays. That's right. Uh, Passover started Friday night. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had uh, a nice little petite family Seder. Right. Uh, with uh, using the traditional family Haggadah. Well, it was put together by Jennifer Pariser, former lawyer, friend of mine, and she put together from various sources this wonderful Seder, most of which is in English, which is always the good because our young kids could read it and we'd have responsive readings and everyone gets involved. With cover art by Zeke Abuhoff. It, which is, makes it special. Yes. Well, when she put it together, it was actually for a blended family like ours. Right. A blended Seder situation. Also with very young kids. Yeah. So that everyone could participate and in it, some it way. And it works. It works. It works for us. It has worked very well okay. for more than 20 years. I, I don't think. know if it's going to have the same appeal as the Mrs. Maisel Seder that was just released, but maybe we can market it somehow. Haggadah, I'm sorry. The Mrs. Maisel Haggadah. What do you think? We'll call Jennifer. We'll, we'll get it out there. All right. On All Amazon. Right. Do that. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, we've had a uh, very nice weekend with a lot of rain. So we expect uh, lots of Mayflowers. Right. And uh, in the Wall Street Journal, uh, cover story in the review section was when Jesus celebrated Passover. Easter and Passover, like Christianity and Judaism, are linked by a history that began in ancient Jerusalem. An article by Paula Fredrickson, a distinguished visiting professor of comparative religion at the Hebrew University. And it's a pretty interesting article, and I was telling you a little bit about it. It kind of sets the stage, uh, as we know, mm -hmm. uh, the Last Supper. Right was a Seder. Well, you say we know. I've heard that. I heard that from you for the first time, but I, I'm sure it's correct. And uh, it is kind of striking. And But I thought that your yeah. description of this article was, was interesting. Well, uh, she is just telling the story. Uh, Jesus is in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And she sets the stage um, saying that, uh, imagine 250,000 families assembling for a celebration, uh, the celebration of Passover. Um, and uh, Josephus, Jewish historian, contemporary with the Gospels authors, writes that on Passover, the population of Jerusalem swelled to more than two million as Jews made pilgrimages for the annual celebration of Israel's liberation from slavery in Egypt. Yeah. Okay, so before you could celebrate. There was a week of ritual purification, all right? Yeah. Then there's the week of Passover, and then the city begins to Yeah, you know, out. it's the numbers which impressed me to begin with. I mean, uh, first of all, we, we read in the Haggadah on Friday, and this I had literally overlooked. It says in the Haggadah, at least, that the amount of Jews fleeing Egypt uh, in the story of Passover is 600,000, which kind of knocked me back in anyway. the Bible story. Yeah, yeah. Six hundred. You don't think of it that way. You think of it's not the way the movie looks. You know, uh, you know uh, the uh, movie with Charlton Heston. And then, uh, and then you're describing this situation. You said, well, there's a gathering there to celebrate Passover involving Jesus. You say, okay, there might have been a few hundred believers. And you're telling me it's in excess of two hundred thousand people, and that Jerusalem's population swells to over two million. It's it's, yes. it's, a, it's a huge yes. movement. It's a huge amount of people. Yes. Yeah, uh, two hundred fifty thousand families 
each with a living sheep. Oh God. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, anyway, so, so here you have it. Now Jesus is from Galilee, but he's coming. I mean, Jerusalem is the place to be, right? Um, for a variety of reasons, uh, and uh, you know, he's he's teaching as well. So, uh, you know, it's an important pilgrimage site, but it is actually um, Jerusalem is part of Judea, and Rome rules Jerusalem. Okay, and not from Rome. The prefect or governor is garrisoned, uh, you know, in the harbor city of Caesarea, kind of nearby. But Pilate, mm -hmm. the governor, and his soldiers come to town during holiday periods like this to help keep the peace. Right. It's an enormous amount of it's people. It's crowd control. And, yeah. yeah. And of course, uh, you know, uh, you got to understand that. Uh, these people are feeling somewhat oppressed yeah. by Rome. Right. Okay. And uh, so uh, tempers can flare or whatever. And, uh, you know, they're nervous about keeping things in order right. to the extent they can. Well, there are lots of interesting details here, including how Jesus actually is celebrating this Seder, you know, very authentically to the extent where he actually wears fringes mm -hmm. or how do you pronounce, do you know how to pronounce? Uh, well, they say or, or towels. Tzitzit. Uh, yeah, I don't know. T-S-Z-I-T. Z-I-T. Anyway, um, he, you know, he's truly uh, fulfilling a Jewish ritual here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it demonstrates, they even sing at the end, like we sing. What? At the end. Like you, you and Bob and, uh, um, would sing at the end of our Seder. Yeah. Okay, so this is all very interesting. The question is, these Passovers were happening. Uh, why, during this one, does it end up with uh, Christ being crucified? And what it comes down into this article, um, Dr. Friedrichson says, is crowd control. Really? Crucifixion was reserved for rebels, okay? Um, and it was meant to serve as a deterrent and, uh, so that uh, Christ dies on the cross, implying that Pilate thought of him as an insurrectionist. But it seems to have served its purpose, okay? Because uh, there were no other incidents uh, recorded by Josephus after Jesus is crucified. His disciples pretty much settle in the area, so they did not feel threatened uh, by Pilate and the Roman well, soldiers. If it served its purpose, it was only in the short term, I mean, it sounds like. Because obviously the Christianity movement takes flight following this. That's no, it wasn't to want. deter Christianity yeah. so much as to deter um, uprisings really? by the people for any reason. It, you know, the article's interesting, and I can't really mm -hmm. articulate it that well, Um not being that knowledgeable in the whole period. But the author points out that many of the people probably excited by the preaching of Jesus were thinking more in the short term and more of being liberated from, you know, Roman oppression mm -hmm. uh, rather than the internal salvation of the kingdom of God mm -hmm. that Jesus was talking about. Uh, but uh, anyway, it's an interesting uh, article and it really uh, kind of shows the uh, interconnection between Jews and Christians uh, at this time of year and at this time of history. It's not till 
Constantine, the Emperor Constantine, the first Christian emperor, comes along that he really insists on this total separation uh, between uh, Christianity and Judaism and the celebrations and uh, it's all very very interesting. It's interesting, uh, you know, in setting the stage for whatever well, if you yeah. have. Look, it, it also just comes to mind because you've got Passover and uh, Easter on the same weekend. And I think you even told me that at some point uh, the church was that's considering not, yeah, separate, separating them out so that they wouldn't be on the same weekend. But and here we are. Well, it, you know, the, actually different uh, Christian sects may celebrate Easter mm-hmm. on different days. You mm-hmm. know that. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it's interesting that it was considered uh, dicey, mm. that they might intersect. Oh. Um, and, well. and here we are. So in any event, um, during the week, uh, we went to the theater and yeah. we saw uh, the Temptations musical, uh, which Ain't is called too Ain't, proud. Ain't Too Proud. Tams is going to jump into song, launch into song. Um, so the Temptations, of course, the iconic uh, Motown group, of the uh, 60s, 70s, 80s, depending on which group of temptations you're talking about, but certainly begun in the 1960s in the Detroit area, I think. Was it Detroit or where was it exactly? Don't recall. But uh, I think it was Detroit. Yeah, I think it was Detroit. And, uh, you know, guys, guys singing on street corners and then moving up from there. And the iconic songs, My Girl, Ain't Too Proud to Beg, Get Ready, Papa Was a Rolling Stone. Um... It was a, uh, the question is, is it a jukebox musical or not, or how one thinks about it. But we enjoyed it a great deal. But what do you think? Jukebox? Are you a Temptations fan? You know, I like their music well enough. Uh, I like their music. What do you think? Well, here's the deal. Yeah. Okay. Um, I will say yeah. that I'm not a fan of the jukebox musical. But I will say in terms of the Temptations, yeah. if I'm ever at a wedding, yeah. Or at any kind of party, right? Okay, where there's music yeah. and a dance floor, the minute I hear I'm up, I'm up, I'm ready to dance. Sunshine on a cloudy uh, day. Uh, I guess that's my girl. Uh, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, it's not. Uh, I don't know if it's just uh, my cultural context growing up yeah. that that's the music uh, that we danced to, Whoa. and so it still makes me want to dance. Or if it's just universal, make you want to dance music well, for everyone. Well, so here's the thing. So these guys are uh, great. The guys who play the Temptations. And that includes uh, Jeremy Pope, who we saw in Choir Boy, and a fellow named Ephraim Sykes. Uh, Ephraim? Ephraim. Is it Ephraim? Yeah. Ephraim Sykes. And, I mean, they're fantastic. And you said to yourself, the real Temptations couldn't have been any better. They dance great. They sing great. Uh, and what's also striking is you're sitting there at the beginning of the musical, a normal Broadway packed house, and they start, you know, playing the first few bars the way you just described as if you were a wedding, bomb, 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 and they start dancing and singing, and suddenly the whole audience is hooting and screeching and yelling enthusiastically. And I say to them, and this is from the very beginning of the musical, and I say to myself, my God, they must have bust in a bunch of, you know, college kids or whatever who are like fantastic Temptations fans. And I... We go through the first act, and the lights go up, and I turn around, I look at the crowd, and everyone's over 70 years old, you know? Right. And uh, that's what it is. It that's, was a pretty that's... homogeneous group. And it was a, yeah. fans yeah. from 1965. A lot of baby boomers. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Uh, but, but I don't think it's, so... it's just for them. I think a lot of people would enjoy it, and, and it's a lot of fun. 
It was a lot of fun. But, but uh, it's not... But, you know, here's, it's still the thing. It's not the Temptations. Right. Okay? It's not the Temptations. And they've been sort of careful to be inspired by the Temptation choreography right. and arrangements, but not limited to. They do give these performers a little bit of rope to show what yeah. they can do. And, and they're fun. I mean, you know, who doesn't love seeing guys jump up in the air and down into splits? Right. And, uh, you know, and some of these uh, vocal <clears throat> gymnastics right. that Listen, they are able to do. It's a it, do, it does carry you away, but it's not the temptation, so there is that limitation. Oh. Every once in a while, you're, you're just, you're really into a song, and you want it to go on forever, and they just stop and they do the next bars. song. Yeah. Well, look, because they're it, telling the story. It is a calculated entertainment. The, the, the performers are fantastically talented. And the it songs are, on are, are us. great. Well, it worked on us. But let's be as crystal clear as we can. You've got the same director uh, as for Jersey Boys, who is Des McEnough. Uh, You've got the same choreographer, choreographer as in Jersey Boys, who is Sergio Trujillo, which is not to say those things are bad, but they know what they're doing. As Jersey Boys ran for something like 20 years. I think a lot of people would tell you that they enjoy The Temptations more than they enjoy uh, Frankie Valli. Uh, but, uh, and maybe that means they're going to have 25 years. I don't know. All we know is it was a lot of fun. Uh, it's not necessarily the most intellectual musical in the world, but it was fun. Well, here's the thing. To some extent, when I was growing up, um, Motown was already right. oldies. Okay, it's yeah. not like... So That's true. To some extent, I didn't really know the story of The Temptations. Right. So that was interesting. It was also interesting to me, the stories that they revealed about uh, the different songwriters yeah. they worked with, like Norman Whitfield. Right. Uh, that was uh, very interesting, how mm. he takes over from Smokey Robinson. Right. And you wouldn't think anybody could take over sure. from Smokey Robinson. Yeah. But his the difference in his style and what he was pushing them to do was actually pretty interesting. It, he's the one who writes Papa Was Rolling That's Stone, so, right. right? And then um, War. Right. And uh, so all of that I found uh, well, you know, added to my understanding and it, and of I, these I, guys. I will, in my own view, it kind of flagged a little bit at some point, two-thirds of the win, but, but it had a fantastic set of closing Numbers. Yes, it did. And, it and, did. and people were on their feet. Yes, and, people and were on their feet. Screaming at the yeah, end of it. Yeah, so, including yours truly. Okay, so uh, one, one thing about this. I learned a lot about StubHub here. Why should I pass this on? Because some people might want to use StubHub. So well, I, the reason we signed up for this musical, because we really, Sadie was supposed to come to right, town, yeah. and we really thought she would enjoy and it. And her business plans changed, and, and, and uh, then she wasn't there. So we had an extra ticket. So I had to sell it. Now, a lot of us have bought tickets on StubHub. But I had to sell a ticket on StubHub. And when I asked around all my buddies who have used StubHub, everyone said, oh, never sold a ticket. So it's I got to experience that. So if you are in that situation, let me tell you. It's, well, it's, first we should say yeah. to the uninitiated, right. StubHub mm. is an internet service right. that uh, um, sells but, helps you sell tickets. Buy and secondary, sell. Buys and sells tickets. Yeah. It's a uh, secondary market uh, for, for all kinds of Broadway shows and sporting events. Right. And so uh, usually people run to StubHub when they say, gee, I need a ticket to X. I can't get it. It's not available. Uh, can I get in the secondary market? Right. So you can easily go on StubHub and pay thousands of dollars for a ticket to, to or, Hamilton. Or, or, or very little yeah. for something that's not too popular. Right. It's, it's a great marketplace. It's right. an open marketplace. So here's what I learned quickly in terms of selling. In terms of selling, when you when you sell it, and it's not, just not hard to do. Let me just say that. You just have to be able to upload your tickets 
and you can get in there and manipulate the price every day if you want and you can gauge the market. Here's how you gauge the market. There are two things to look at. One is what's actually going on in terms of telecharge, the standard way to buy tickets for a show like Ain't Too Proud. Uh, you're going to check that to see if there's availability in the standard way because in a sense you're competing with that to sell your ticket. And you're also going to check how well StubHub is selling the tickets. What are people pricing the tickets at in StubHub, the secondary market? And what I learned is this. Pay attention to the first and not the second. The, the prices on StubHub that you'll see for secondary market could be misleading. There's a lot of manipulation that goes on there and then they disappear. They're by brokers and they have other ways of selling the tickets. You look first at telecharge. If telecharge has tickets available, you've got to price it at or below the telecharge price quickly because otherwise you're going to left holding it. And it's only when I move the price down to that and I, and I started ignoring the StubHub prices that I was able to sell. All right. So, so you learned a little something. I did. In the end, we did sell the ticket. Right. Uh, so uh, it worked out. Worked out. out. All right. And, and we had uh, a, we had a good time. time. Yes. Yeah. All right. So you had something about apples. Apples. So, from the Bucks County Herald, yes, the little uh, newspaper in uh, the area here, there was an interesting story about a Bucks County original returns home. And this is the story of the Smith Cider Apple. All right. So, what I found out from reading this article is that uh, back in the day, there um, until Prohibition, there were 17,000 distinct American apple varieties. Okay, that seems like a lot. A lot. Yeah. And then we have um, Prohibition. Yeah. And here's the other interesting thing I, I learned, that uh, until an influx of uh, German... Polish and Irish uh, immigrants, hard cider was the drink of choice in the U.S., yeah. not beer. Right, at the alcoholic okay? drink of choice. And yeah. so when prohibition comes around and the temperance nuts go crazy, they actually destroy many of the orchards of uh, apples that are largely used for hard cider. I mean, you realize that you know certain apples are good for eating fresh, certain apples are good for sweet cider, certain apples are good for making pies, but certain apples were good for hard cider. And in Bucks County, there were two sort of uh, varieties particular that originated in Bucks County, the Townsend Apple and the Smith Apple, the Smith the Cider Apple. And uh, Smith Cider Apple, both of them kind of disappear. Hmm. But cleverly, uh, the Manoff family, Gary and Amy, uh, who have an orchard here in Bucks today, have been uh, working on expanding uh, both their varieties of apples and creating apple cider. And they managed to luck into uh, some Smith cider apple seedlings or whatever, and uh, they have revived this long-lost so, so variety. Back. they're bringing it back? Yes, they're bringing it back. Uh, they have just planted um, kind of... A, Quite a few Smith oh, cider apples, and they've set up this fabulous uh, sort of um, wall of cider pat taps 
in their um, orchard store. Really? Uh, so I think we have to investigate this. But it was interesting to me that A, hard cider was such, yeah. uh, you know, the rage yeah. in America years ago, and that prohibition killed all yeah, these nice prohibition, apples. We don't have to, you know, prohibition, a lot of bad things about government come out in prohibition. But uh, we did hear when we went, went to Ireland, you'll remember, that uh, we went to Dublin. And we said to the cab driver something about Guinness. And he said to us, nobody drinks Guinness in the summertime here. We drink cider. They drink specifically Bulmer's cider. Yeah. And they drink it on ice. Mm. And I never, ever thought of drinking cider on ice. But when we were sitting there on a hot summer day, yeah. and the people next to us in that one tavern yeah. uh, ordered Bulmer's and, uh, over this, and they pour it into a tall glass of ice, uh, it looked fantastic. It yeah. looked very refreshing. So um, that uh, that's a treat. Well, all right, I'll, I'll stick with Guinness. But uh, but they must have Magnus around. Okay, well that's a good development. Um, uh, yeah, we all got to go to the man. Well, well, we go by the, the man off, off uh, on our bikes. We yeah, we yeah. do. We all see right. little signs for it, so we got to get there. All right. Well, just to follow up with something we said. The big story in uh, ice hockey, which we think is the big playoffs going on now, was that Tampa Bay, the leading team, was at risk of losing. Uh, just to, to close that loop, they did lose. Uh, the Tampa Bay Lightning got swept uh, four to zero, and they had a record-breaking season in terms of winning games. And there's an article in the Times that says uh, the Lightning debacle. Uh, how bad is it? It's bad. Uh, they're, they're compared in this article to all kinds of teams that are great regular season success and then flunked in the playoffs. And this is the worst. Why? Because they got swept and there's just no explanation. Uh, there's nothing to say about it. They just feel awful. The only saving grace is that the only comparable experience in, in recent years was more than a year ago. The, uh, one of the first seeded teams, uh, the Virginia Cavaliers, lost in the first round of the NCAA playoffs. It was the greatest upset in the history of the NCAA playoffs in the first round. And what did they do the next year? Came back and won. won the championship. All right. So, so Tampa Bay can look forward to that. All right. So we're fingers crossed, Tampa fingers, Bay. Next year. Don't lose hope. And then there was a, just quickly an article about basketball in which it says the NBA's best shooter has blurry vision. And it turns out that Stephon Curry, the great three-point shooter for Golden State, is nearsighted. And he's in the process of uh, adjusting to contact lenses to improve his sight. And the article marvels at the fact that he's had great success as a shooter all these years, even without correcting his vision. Uh, and and here is the truth about that from someone who's nearsighted. You don't need or necessarily even want 20-20 vision to play basketball because uh, many people believe that if your vision's a little off, you have a little softer focus and you have a little softer touch and that's what shooting is all about. So, and you wouldn't have the great NBA career that you've had yourself. That's a good point. If you, I would have been nothing uh, yes. in the NBA right. without my nearsightedness. Right. I had a gym teacher in sixth grade. I remember this for the rest of my life. Who, in explaining this point, I'm not making this up. This was conventional wisdom years ago. He said, um, "You know, you need nearsightedness helps you. It gives you a soft touch. As a matter of fact, let me just ask this group. Think hard about this." What kind of person would be a great basketball player? And we all hesitated, and he said, a blind person. Literally said this. 
And we said to ourselves later, well, that he can't be. He's a gym teacher. So that's, that's why he's a gym teacher. But in any event, so I wasn't shocked by that about the blurry vision. All, All right, right. So you had a couple of stories funny... to live by. Yes. You well, know. you know, I got to say, let's just keep in mind what this show, our podcast is about. Yes. Okay. It is a conversation. Yeah. And we're not experts in anything. We're enthusiasts. Well, speak for yourself. And, yes. I, you know, I, I know for myself, I just, you know, I'm constantly throwing out all kinds of misstatements. And I apologize for that. And, uh, you know, but uh, I do, you know, and I, I don't want to um, throw shade at oh, other people. That's good. I uh, like that. Yeah. But uh, I did read a bunch of reviews, uh, movie reviews this weekend in the New York Times uh, and a lot of them were bad. And they said, the um, the critics said kind of mean things about these movies. Uh, so, you know, uh, my heart goes out to them. Nonetheless, I'm going to repeat some of the mean things. Yes, go ahead. Uh, because uh, flipping through the newspaper, looking for interesting, smaller films... Uh, that we might want to see. And I kept seeing ads for something called Stuck. And it's a movie musical. And here's what the reviewer says about Stuck. Setting a stage musical inside a stalled subway car sounds like such a natural idea that I'm surprised there hasn't been a whole bunch of such shows. But after watching the film adaptation of the 2012 musical Stuck, directed by Michael Berry, I'm sorry anybody ever thought of the concept at all. That's a negative review. That's a negative review. And uh, he goes on to say at a certain point, when the characters are singing, you can't wait for them to get back to talking. And when they're talking, you can't wait for them to get back to singing. Well, that doesn't and, leave much at, in between. At the end of the uh, review, he's recommending uh, several uh, musical TV ads that he finds uh, have better oh, um, storylines yeah. yeah. and better music as well. There's also uh, a um, movie called Red Joan that, you know, it's a British film and uh, Judy Dench is in it. And so I'm thinking, oh, this may be a good one. But no, 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 no. Um, it's a story of Cambridge spies, this reviewer says, atom bomb secrets and a passionate affair between a demure Brit and a dashing commie, which should steam up the screen and pop your popcorn, or you would think so. But leave it to the fetid British theater director, Trevor Nunn, to flatten the intrigue and dampen the lust that could have made Red Joan zing. So anyway, you didn't tell me it was Trevor Nunn. Trevor Nunn's a huge name, uh, you know. So uh, here well, you in, in the theater. Theater, maybe yeah. even opera. Uh, yeah, but that's so. These are Trevor you know, Nunn and Judy Dench. Yes. Oh God. Yes. Bummer. All right. Uh, but uh, well, in, in the New York Times, they often have these smaller reviews, and when you see a sort of touted yeah. Uh, title yeah. in those smaller reviews, you go, "Uh oh, well, if it was good, it wouldn't be in there." 
Yeah. Well, they also oh they also have the the critics. What's what it's called? Critics what? Critics choice. Or critics pick. Oh, critics pick. I think we should say that the Temptations musical was a critics pick. Yeah. Oh, okay. But also the musical you don't want to see, Hades Town. Well, that I don't want to see. I, I, maybe I'll get talked into it. Is a critics pick. Yeah. I, at the time, and, uh, a lot of people didn't like it, but a lot of people. did. That is by Rachel. I can't think of her name, but the the same woman who uh, directed. Natasha Pierre and the oh, Great yeah, yeah, Comet. Yeah, the Great Comet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah that's right. Okay. Um, although yeah. it's written by somebody else and it has mythology in it. So you're, well, you're it's, thinking, it's, I want to I don't have it. the details here, but the whole story was downtown. It was a terribly complicated story. They revamped it for Broadway. The Times Review actually says it didn't work downtown, but it works now. So it's a little bit of a checkered history. It's a pretty complicated deal. But, you know, well, well, well we can get into that some you're other thinking time. It's just going to be weird. No, I don't know. It's just it, sometimes when things are too heavily plotted, uh, it's a little hard to stay with them uh, and get excited about them. But uh, I don't know. I don't know too much about it. I have seen real uh, contrast in terms of the way it was received. So we'll okay. find out more about it. All right. But on the movie thing. So here's a movie that also uh, we'll just see. And I'm, I'm not saying this is negative. I just don't know. But it's it's a curious story. And it has something to do with odd, you know, an odd situation with a very top director. It's Amazing Grace, which is coming out soon, which is a movie about uh, a gospel performance led by Aretha Franklin. And what I mean by that is this. In 1971, when Aretha Franklin was 29 years old, uh, she decided to spearhead a two-day gospel performance uh, in Los Angeles involving some very big gospel groups and singers like, and reverends like Reverend James Cleveland uh, really big names in the field. Uh, that was just about the same time that you had Edwin Hawkins singing Oh Happy Day, talking about rhythm and blues, and gospel and, you know, and, and popular entertainment has always been somewhat linked. So she descends upon uh, L.A. to, to have this uh, two-day event. Um, and it's uh, there's a lot of people involved. It's, in some ways, it's chaotic. In some ways, uh, it, it works out extremely well. It results in the greatest... Uh, selling gospel album of all time called Amazing Grace. So this is a documentary? But at the same time, at the same time that they embarked on this, they decided they were going to make it a film because you had it at at that same time. You just had the Woodstock film and other films like it. And so they thought it would be wise to arrange, Monterey Pop, another example, it would be wise to arrange to have a filmmaker film this contemporaneously while they were doing the the recording. And they bring in Sidney Pollack. Now, Sidney Pollack was early in his career, Tootsie, you're exactly right. They hadn't done Tootsie yet, so he was just getting off uh, the shoot horses, don't they? But he was a very conventional director. Uh And the people who make the documentaries, D.A. Pennybaker is the best known, uh, although Scorsese made one, but D.A. Pennybaker just knew how to do that kind of film. And uh, there's a lot of back and forth as whether Sidney Pollack is the right guy. So he's shooting the film while they're doing this, doing this two-day concert, and it turns out that when they finished the film, and here it depends on who you believe, but uh, generally they're saying the film had one big problem and that he didn't use something called clatterboards. I don't know what they are, but it made it impossible for large portions of it to sync the sound with the film's performers singing. Mm. So they couldn't use it. Now, I'm, that's what they say. And as a result, it's just the movie uh, footage has just sat in cans for years. But now, with of the di- magic with the digital of stuff, computers. I mean, you know, yes. like they're making World War One films, right? Yeah, so, yeah, 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 yeah. And now they figured that out. So I shouldn't say now. A few years ago, they figured it out, uh-huh. and they go to Aretha and they say, "Good news, uh, we can do this." 
we're back in business, we can release the film. And Aretha says, I, I don't want that released in the film. Really? The way I think of it, you know, that became more about Reverend Cleveland and other people, not so much about what I was trying to do. I'm not enthused about that. Now yeah. Aretha passes. So the, the person who's the executor says, yeah, yeah, let's do that. Let's release the film. So I maybe in conjunction with this, yeah. I heard the snippets of a past uh, interview. Oh, yeah. Uh, with Terry Gross and talking to Aretha. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and what was wonderful was hearing Aretha gush over first uh, seeing people like Sam Cooke mm-hmm. uh, walk into her life and saying, "I." she says things like, uh, so cute, she says things like, I didn't even know men could look like that. Right. You know, they were dressed so sharp. Well, we should, um, we should say her, her uh, father was the Reverend C.L. Franklin, right. was a huge church leader and a celebrity in his own right. And that's but why he, all these people came by. But he did not limit her musical no, scope no. Uh, to simply church music. Yeah. He, he very much was uh, had friends in uh, the, um, you know, no, in the entertainment so, well, field, no yeah, question. Yeah. Look, she was born in, into a famous family, and she was obviously gifted, and he was connected with all these entertainment figures, and, and that's part of her story. But So that was, that was a all right. interview. So we'll see. Keep your eye out for that movie. Okay, just a, a quick, uh, there was a, an opinion piece, actually, uh, in the New York Times this Sunday, The Healing Power of Gardens, written by Oliver Sacks. So Oliver Sacks... Um, Neurologist, naturalist, uh, history of science author, um, has been passed away in 2015. Mm-hmm. But they're about to uh, release a um, posthumous collection of essays called "Everything in Its Place," and uh, so it's uh, a very nice piece about the power of gardens, of greenery, and uh, not just to make you feel a little bit better, but he honestly felt for his um, severely compromised uh, Parkinson patients and uh, Alzheimer's patients that uh, coming into contact with nature could really help people physiologically, uh, somehow uh, connecting with uh, neurological disorders. He talks about in this essay, a friend of his who had Tourette's syndrome, and had a variety of, uh, you know, ticks and verbal ejaculations, he calls it. When they went for a hike out in the desert, all of this disappeared. Mm-hmm. All of it. Um, and uh, he talks about a um, situation where he's dealing with an elderly lady with Parkinson's who finds herself kind of physically frozen and able to initiate movement. Once again, they take her outside into a kind of rock garden, and suddenly she is clamoring all about on the rocks. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he strongly felt, you know, he also, he wrote that um, uh, book that became the movie the Awakenings. Man, yeah, right. Um, he also wrote the, the Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Yes, yes, right. which is interesting because uh, he, that involves uh, the concept face blindness, mm-hmm. okay, where you can't recognize familiar faces. Mm-hmm. He says he had that 
as well, which caused huge shyness in him. Yeah. He's an interesting, interesting guy. I heard a couple of interviews with him, and uh, he seems very fascinating, compelling, interesting. He had a crazy early life going to medical school and then um, being, uh, he had a period where he's uh, like a super bodybuilder on mm. Muscle Beach really? and into drugs and into sex and just a really wild life. And then he drops it all and turns a different direction. Uh, so fascinating guy. Uh, but uh, I agree with him about the nature stuff. Right. I mean, my just uh, anecdotal evidence is we always feel better when we get out. And, uh, you know, people have been realizing this for a long time. That's why we have Central Park. Okay. All right. Okay. It's meant to, you know, help city folk. Nobody says anything against the Central Park. It's, a, it's, it's got the support of the entire city. Um, all right. So the last bit is uh, the only obituary we we're going to talk about is Georgia Engel died. So, so Georgia Engel was famous as a uh, sitcom uh, star and and some shows, fair bit of Broadway shows actually. But Wasn't she recently in uh, Drowsy Chaperone? She was. She was in the Drowsy Chaperone in two thousand six, but uh, played it for several years. So recently might be okay. And some other shows uh, besides. Uh, she was in a show called uh, Halftime, which was based on Gotta Got Dance, which is a show about some 60-plus uh, dancers, women who take up dancing, and that became a Broadway show. And apparently she was quite a good break dancer for women over 60. But, uh, <laughs> All right. but she became famous, as you know, and maybe some people listening know, playing Georgette Franklin on the Mary Tyler Moore, sh Moore right. show. Right. This very uh, soft-spoken, sort of air-headed character. And what's interesting about uh, Georgia Engel was she always played that character. Was she like that in real life? She must have been because she, she was in a whole bunch of sitcoms including uh, you know Everybody Loves Raymond uh, you know Hot in Cleveland The, the Betty White Show uh, and in every one of them she's got the same breathy voice she's kind of airheaded it's almost like she took that Georgette character and moved it to different shows. It might as well be the same character. That's See, well, this to me is very disappointing. Dan. Why? I'm very disappointed. Because it would be interesting to me if you said, in real life, uh, she was outrageous. She swore like a sailor. No. Um, and, but, well, uh, look, it's just not the way it is. She but, was a body personality. No, she wasn't. But, and, 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 all right, so fine. It was typecasting. Well, maybe. But the, the, the question is Anything this. interesting here? Here's what's interesting. Okay. Okay. And here's what you, what's not easy, okay? No matter what she was in, even though you're going to say it was the same personality, and maybe it was her personality, she always got a laugh. She was funny. It's not like you would say, oh, you know, that's, uh, that's old news. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, that's funny, that's not funny. She was consistently funny, perhaps with the same approach, but consistently funny. And I don't think that's a small thing. Uh, and, and she would do some outrageous things. This fellow is quoted, Philip Rosenthal, with her director on Raymond, who said at one point there was, there was some uh, segment where she had to show that she was a smoker, which was out of character. And she like played with a cigarette lighter like she was a mafia boss, and, and everybody got a laugh. But he said the main thing with her is she could get a laugh on literally any line you gave her. I've never seen anything like it. And it's kind of true. I mean... How she did it, I don't know. I'm not endorsing any particular thing in her approach. 
but she was always funny. And, and then this well, very gentle just character. Sounds like she was a pro. She was a pro, and but she was sort of look, and and they even looking for the uh, cause of death. They didn't know she was a Christian scientist. Never saw a doctor. Passed away at the age of seventy. Well, that's a sad loss. Yeah, it is a sad loss. But she's a funny woman. All right, so that's all we've got on this uh, Passover slash uh, Easter weekend. All right, and we'll see you next week with Tamsin and Dan. Read the paper. Ooh.